Well, friends, did you grow up with a certain set of dinner rules? Maybe you learned at a young age not to chew with your mouth open, not to talk with food in your mouth. Maybe you learned not to interrupt when someone else is talking. That one goes beyond the dinner table, doesn't it? Maybe you learned not to slurp your soup. And I know for some of you, I can see on your faces, I'm striking a chord. You're like, oh man, those are some peeves like this. Mm, No, we just don't do that. Maybe you learned to uh, wait your place in line to defer to the guest of honor to other people. If you have a big family gathering or a big social gathering, to not be the first one in line to get your food, right? We have to remind some people in my family of that from time to time. Maybe you learn not to throw your food. Hopefully that doesn't come up too often, uh, but maybe you had to learn that lesson. But you know, before all of those, before you ever get to the table, I think most of us probably learned from our mamas. We heard it time after time, probably, right? The, the good dinner rule, wash your hands, right? You got to wash your hands. Well, today we're going to encounter a moment where Jesus and his friends, the disciples, broke some dinner etiquette. In fact, that old rule from mama of washing your hands They did not do, and it got them into some trouble. So let's pick it up in Mark chapter 7 and see what all the hubbub is about. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, the Pharisees are like top religious leaders, and they've got all the religious rules and regulations down. And they noticed that some of Jesus' disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. Now keep in mind that at that time, 2,000 years ago in the Jewish culture, they didn't know anything about germs and bacteria. This was not a rule about disease transmission. This was just more about ritual. They were concerned about looking good in front of other people, looking good in front of God, following their religious rituals. And this was one of those rituals. And Mark, the writer of this account of Jesus' life, of this gospel, was writing to a Roman audience who didn't understand all the Jewish customs. And so he's writing to these non-Jewish Romans, and he explains why they had these rituals. And he goes on said the Jews, especially those Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Now these ancient traditions, you remember the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountaintop, meets with God. God speaks to him, gives him the Ten Commandments and scraps them on stone with his own finger. And that's the law that God gave Moses. Well, then God also gave other laws to Moses, other things that kind of extrapolate those laws out. Now, we call the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those have been referred to by the Jewish culture and Jewish religion and not by us as as the Torah, which means law. Those first five books of the Bible are the law, what God gave them to follow as, as obedience, as the rules and regulations. And so they had this written law from God. But over the years, they also created hundreds of other laws to kind of circle around that. And there were two reasons for that mainly. One, they wanted to honor God's law, make sure they didn't break it. But they also wanted to protect themselves from breaking God's law. They they didn't want to get on the bad side of God. So they kind of put barriers between them. So like, well, if I'm over here and breaking the laws way over there, then I'm safer here. So they created all these other laws. And those laws became known as the oral 
Torah or the oral law, the spoken law. So you had spoken law, written law. The written law came from God. The spoken law came from just the religious leaders over the years and centuries. But eventually, by the time Jesus is on the scene, this spoken law is given the same credibility and the same weight as what God said. So what was spoken was considered as holy as what was written. And Yet one came from man and one came from God. And so they had this thing. And one of those ceremonial rules was focused on ceremonial washing. That when God spoke to the priests in Exodus 30, he said, wash your hands after you have offered and before you offer the ceremonial sacrifice. What would happen is the priest on holy occasions, on special occasions, would sacrifice an animal on the altar, sacrificing, offering it to God. And one of the perks of being the priest is you kind of got to eat the leftovers, if you will. So the priest would get to eat. And God said, wash your hands for that. Like, you've got to be clean for this. So that was a special rule for a special person, the priest, on a special occasion with a special meal. But over the years and the centuries, all that specialness got applied to ordinary people with ordinary meals on ordinary days, on ordinary occasions for just ordinariness. And that became the tradition. But what that means is that when Jesus' disciples were breaking this rule, it was not like one of the commandments God gave them. They weren't breaking the Ten Commandments. They were just deviating and disregarding some religious tradition. But that infuriated the Pharisees. So Mark continues giving us some background. Similarly, those Pharisees and the Jewish people, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. All right, so the market is this public place where they would go. They would buy their food as well as other goods, but they go to the market. And you have the Jewish people and the Pharisees among them, especially, who are like the most devout. They follow all the rules as closely as they can. But in the marketplace, you would have some Jews who might be a little lazier with the law. They don't follow as devoutly. They've kind of like, eh, you know, kind of been on this. And you'd have the Romans. They were occupied by the Roman army. And and so you'd have these other people there. And you'd have non-Jews traveling through that area who may have settled in that area. And so these Jewish people are bumping shoulders with non-Jews who they say are unclean. And so because of that, when you bump into them, they have these traditions that they've clung to, such as the ceremonial washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and washing their hands special ways. And we would say that's not a bad thing to wash your dinnerware. If you invite me over to your house or I invite you over to my house and the dishes aren't clean, if I see a lipstick ring on the cup that you're giving me, I'm probably going to pause before drinking out of that, if I, especially if it's a dude. I'm going to be like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so, like, we, we would pause before that. We want those things to be clean. But this has nothing to do with germ transmission or disease, right? This is all about cooties. This is like going back to the playground when you were a little kid. This is when, and hopefully you were never the one with cooties, right? But this is some of those kids saying, oh, you're not as good as us. It's the superiority thing, and they run away. So this is the Jewish leader saying, i got to wash your icky cootie contamination off my hands. That's just not good, and I've got to be holy and prim and proper. I've done this right. So this is what they're getting at here. Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. They know they're supposed to do that. Why don't they do it? And Jesus replied to him, you 
hypocrites. Now that word hypocrite was a Greek word, is a Greek word, that simply meant pretender or faker. It, it came from the theater. It came from acting where you would put on a mask and pretend to be somebody you weren't. And so he's applying that here to these people. You're pretending to be somebody you aren't, you fakers. Isaiah the prophet was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. They know all the right things to say. They know all the right times to say them. But their hearts are far from me. He continued on. He said their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as though those were the commands that came from God. For you ignore God's law and you substitute your own tradition in its place. Jesus continued, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. You let go of what God has said so you can cling to the traditions that you have made. These are tough words from Jesus. He's kind of picking a fight here. He's pushing some buttons. Now, Jesus is not saying that all tradition is bad, that we should blanketly throw out all tradition, that tradition is no good. That's not at all what he's saying. But he is saying that the idea of following some traditions is not what makes us good or holy. That simply abiding by the way we've done things and following tradition can't make you clean in God's sight. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I think Jesus would even go on to say, and we can read this into the text, that if we're not careful, our traditions over time can become a hindrance to us. They can be problematic for us and more problematic than helpful down the road if we're not careful. Here's a distinction that has been helpful for me over the years as I've followed Jesus, and it might be helpful for you as well. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. As we try to understand tradition, this is I think the best way for us to look at it, it's the living faith of those who have gone before us, those who have followed God in generations before us. But traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. It's a rigid legalism that says this is the way we've got to do things. Let me explain this a little bit more. Traditionalism says we do what we do the way we do it because that's the way we've always done it. But tradition says we do what we do the way we do it because it honors God and it's helpful for us. Tradition also asks, what is God up to next? What will God do now? Traditionalism clings to what's comfortable. It clings to what's familiar. It clings to what we prefer. It clings to nostalgia. Happy memories of days gone by. Traditional or Tradition, though, seeks the expression of a rich, living faith now. Traditionalism focuses more on methods than on the message. But tradition says the methods may change, but the message is unchanging. And it clings to the message. So given that criteria, it's wise for those of us who have journeyed with Jesus for a while to ensure that we are not trading God's ways for our ways. And I want to speak especially to those of you who may feel burned by religious tradition. Maybe you had a bunch of rules and regulations heaped upon you at an earlier era of life. Maybe you've experienced that recently. 
where rules and regulations have been forced on you. You gotta do it this way, and if you don't, you're a bad person and shame on you. And I just wanna encourage you to learn to appreciate the good intentions of the ones who are speaking those rules. Learn to appreciate that they were for you and not against you. They were trying to help you. And for those who weren't trying to help you, learn to forgive. Learn to forgive the bad behavior of those who weaponized the Bible instead of using it to help you grow in your faith. But don't. Whatever you do, don't dismiss God. Don't dismiss the Bible. Don't dismiss the church because of the bad behavior of some. Instead, and this is, this is a good rule for all of us, examine what God's word actually says. Not what you want it to say, not what you hope it says, not what you would prefer it to say, but look at what God's word actually says and dig into it and then examine your life in light of it. And where you find that your life does not align with God's word, don't throw out God's word but offer those areas of your life to God and surrender and just see what God does with it. You know, sometimes I think we can confuse churchianity for Christianity. Churchianity is the social club kind of faith. If COVID gave us anything as a gift, this was a gift it gave the church, that it exposed those who just came to church for maybe the wrong reasons, for social club kind of Christianity. What's in it for me? I just want to be around people who think like me and act like me and vote like me and behave like me. I want to be around the people who sin the way I do because the people who sin differently than me, they're worse than me. But the people who sin like me, they're okay. (laughs) And we've seen what has happened culturally. That when we make it about the wrong things instead of making it about King Jesus, We miss the point, and that messes things up. So if you're frustrated with churchianity, if you're fed up with that, I get it, because I am too. I'll tell you the place that I'm most frustrated by it is when I... When I see it in my own life, when it shows up with my own faith, when it shows up in the way I've done things, and I realize, man, I'm, I'm about three degrees off. And I got to get back into alignment with God. Because you see, that's just not Christianity. Like the social club kind of Christianity is not what Jesus died to create in his church. Christianity is less about pointing out all the things that are wrong in the world. And it's way more focused on taking the good news of Jesus, the hope of Jesus, the light of Jesus into all areas of the world. And that's the mission Jesus has given us. Not to retreat from, but to infiltrate into. So church, are there traditions that we, that you, have clung to more tightly than maybe clinging to God's word? Maybe there are things that you were told the Bible says that upon further inspection, you may discover the Bible doesn't actually say that. Maybe there are some traditions that have become part of your life and part of your way of faith that, that you were told, well, this is what church is, this is what Christianity is, this is what God wants from us, that maybe the Bible doesn't actually lean on that. Maybe there are things that were practices based on good principles, but you've missed the principle to cling to the practice, and we need to 
look back to that, maybe these are the things that shape our view of when women's and men's roles in the church or in the home or in culture. But maybe these are the things that shape our view of the way church leadership should function and what the roles are of church leadership and what they're supposed to do or how we're supposed to make decisions in the church. Maybe this influences what we think the Bible says about dancing or drinking or clothing or any number of other areas. You know, often well-intentioned people create rules to help the church function well and to protect the church from problems. And that's a good thing. But sometimes, over time, those well-intentioned rules become problems of their own. They're good for a moment, but when we don't continue to examine how we put them into practice and our need for them and what they might communicate, they can communicate the exact wrong thing about God. See, it's both wise and helpful for us to regularly hold up our traditions against the word of God. To, to dig into God's word, to study it, to examine it, to learn what it says, to, to come to it afresh. Sometimes one of the helpful parts of that process is to read the Bible in a translation that we are less familiar with because it forces us to engage the Bible in a new, fresh way, to, to see it and to realize that there's continuing, ongoing scholarship about the cultural context in which the Bible was written. And so we come to it to say, maybe some of the things that I've always clung to aren't the way God would have us do it today. And so we have to continually examine our traditions against the word of God. And what's really dangerous for anyone, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we got to be careful that we don't bring our preferences, our wants, our hopes, our beliefs, the way we want the world to function, and then we judge God's word against those things. When we hold those things up as a standard, then we have no standard of truth for anything. This is the standard. And we hold all other beliefs up against this as our filter. Jesus gave them an example of just one area where they were doing this. He said, for instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments here, according to the Fifth Commandment. And it says, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of mom and dad must be put to death. Seems harsh, but parents might say, yeah, that might work better in my house. So there you have it. So he's quoting that from another passage later on in Scripture. And then Jesus says, but you say that it's just fine for people to say to their parents, sorry, can't help you. I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many, many, many others. What Jesus is referring to here is part of the spoken law of Corbin. It was a a tradition they had created along the way. And Corbin just meant dedicated to God. That's what that Hebrew word means. It's something that's dedicated to God. But the tradition attached to that was saying, if I own something, I can look really good in the sight of other people by saying, well, I've dedicated that thing to God. I take all my possessions, all of what I have, and I say, that is all now Corbin. What that means is, God, this is yours, and I just get to use it while I'm here. What it actually meant was, 
I get to use everything, and God, I'm going to give you the leftovers, but it's going to make me look good in the eyes of other people. I get to look really religious in saying this. And it's kind of like if you have a family trust. You put the house in the trust, the cars in the trust, all the money goes in the trust, all the things you own go into the family trust. And you don't actually own those things anymore. The trust owns them, but you get to use them while you're around. But when you're gone, they, they go into the trust, and the trust gives it away. Well, Corman is, instead of family trust, it's just all given to God. So when you're gone, then God owns it. It's given to God in whatever way. Now, at that time in history, Keep in mind, there, there was nothing to take care of the older population. There was no Social Security, Medicare. There were no 401Ks or 403Bs. There was no retirement plan. There was no pensions. There was nothing like that. There was simply family, and family does for family. So the tradition was that children would take care of their parents as they age. The parents take care of the kids all along. The, then they kind of have this mutual, we're taking care of each other. A lot of times they would even live in the same home or in the same community. But then as the parents would age and they would get sick and they would get needy or they were not able to continue the, their work or whatever it might be, then the kids would take care of the parents. And so they would share with the parents. But Corbin gave them this out to say, well, what we would have done for you, we gave to God. We can't give it to you. That's like stealing from God. Sorry, Mommy. Sorry, Daddy. You're on your own. It was a really sneaky way to avoid responsibility. It was a really shady, suspect way to get out of the responsibility. So Jesus called on the crowd to come and hear. He said, all of you listen and do your best to understand this. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Well, then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, to get some downtime with his buddies, the disciples. And the disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. So Jesus looks at him and is like, are you that dense? Really? Guys, again, you just don't get this? What's wrong with you? It's like, all right, here we go. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. It only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. That's a really kind and sanitized translation of what Jesus says. Sometimes we over-sanitize the Bible and we miss the emphasis that the words actually give us. This is poopy talk, okay? And by saying this, Jesus declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Praise God, because if you read the Old Testament law, we don't get bacon or lobster. So thank you, Jesus. And he's setting the stage that the Jewish religious kosher rules will no longer hinder the spread of God's love to other people. We see that playing out in the book of Acts, another message, another time. So Jesus added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on, right? We get that. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. I have a friend who's a gastroenterologist, an intestinal surgeon, if you will. And oftentimes in his line of work, he asks his patients for stool samples, And we're not talking the kind of stool you sit on. We're talking about what comes out of the part of your body that sits on that stool, right? So he's asking for that. And he often will joke with me that you can tell a lot about a person by what comes out of the person. That you tell a lot about their lifestyle habits, what they eat, how they eat, 
how sedentary their lifestyle is, how they grill their food. I mean, he gets, he's like, you can tell a lot about a person by what comes out of them. Now, spiritually speaking, what comes out of your bowels does not make you clean or unclean in the sight of God. Those things matter for your health. Pay attention to that. But spiritually speaking, it's what comes from a person's heart that makes them clean or unclean. What comes from the heart overflows through our mouths and through our hands and in our behaviors. Jesus is drawing distinction between the kinds of things that come into our bodies. He said it's not eating kosher that saves us. The Pharisees said what you do on the outside makes you a good person. You put on the act, you put on the display, and you fake it, and you act well. That will make you holy. If you behave the right way, then you're good with God and others. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You can't just do that. Because what's inside is what matters. Transformation and goodness and holiness are birthed from the inside out. Now he's not saying that what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Jesus makes it pretty clear that those things do matter. That whole list he gives us, anger and murder and theft and all. I mean, those are doing things, things we do with our bodies and do with our mouths and things we say. He says that matters, but those matter because it's the overflow. See, Christianity is not just be good and stay out of trouble. Christianity is not just change your behavior and you'll be okay. It just doesn't work that way. And that is unsustainable for a lifetime. Christianity is not just, well, put on the good religious act. And sometimes we miss that, don't we? Like, we need to hear that from Jesus. Because you stand in our lobby on a typical Sunday and just ask people, how you're doing? How are you doing? Good, good, good. Oh, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And way too many people will say good. And here's what just blows me away is that I read the prayer request that says, but there are so many things that are not good in our lives. Hold up. Now, now we don't want to be people of complaining who are like, well, I'm doing really terrible. No, we want to acknowledge that even when life is not at its best, the God we serve is still good and good to us. But it's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, man, I got some messy errors in my life. It's okay to admit once in a while, oh, we're doing good, like our faith is not in jeopardy. But the missus and I, we were at it on the way in today because we don't like each other's driving styles, right? Like anybody ever been there? I mean, I'm just going to tell you, there's a reason that I drive to church separately now from my family on most Sundays. Because the preacher just doesn't need commentary on the way in. Like it never feeds my soul in the right way, right? We can acknowledge that. Like it's okay. We are all broken people who are still in process of being made whole and being made holy by the work of a holy God working in us through his spirit, transforming us from the inside out. Let's just acknowledge that we're all in process. Nobody's perfect. So let's drop the facade and be real. Now, I'm not suggesting that next Sunday when you come into church, like, hey, how you doing? You lead off with the worst sin imaginable that week. Well, this week I thought about killing my neighbor. It's probably not where we go, right? Like, like, but we can be a little more honest and transparent we don't have it all together and christianity never says we do like christianity is not pretend that it's all good christianity says come and die and be born again in the likeness of jesus 
Acknowledge that Jesus is king and you've been in rebellion to him. So you surrender to him and you offer all areas of life to him and let him transform you in those areas. And when you find areas, as you continually will, that are out of alignment with God, you surrender that, you kill that old way of living and you let Jesus breathe new life into that area of your life. That's Christianity. It's being made new in the likeness of God. In the Old Testament, God would often speak through his messengers. We call them prophets. One of those was Ezekiel. And God spoke this to the people. He, he had been talking to them about how their hearts were far from him and turned from him, similar to what Jesus was saying in this passage in Mark. And then God says this. He says, I'll give you a brand new heart. I'll put a whole new spirit within you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart. He's speaking metaphorically here. And I'll give you a tender, responsive heart. I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Now, some people hear that last part like, oh, of course, God just wants us to follow him. It's all about rules and regulations. It's all about God's law. Listen, the king of glory died on a cross for you. He's not against you. His rules, his laws, his decrees are what's best for you. He gives that as grace Like there's not this weird transition from, well, the Old Testament was law and the New Testament is grace. Guess what? The law of the Old Testament was grace given to us. Here's the way to know God, to follow God, and to avoid all the pitfalls of life if you'll surrender to him. So what this means is our faith is not just going through the motions. It's not just putting on the act, but it's offering God our hearts. And to offer God our heart means we also have to partner with God in protecting our hearts from all the forces that would seek to invade and do damage to them. Author of Proverbs, who wrote so much wisdom into the Proverbs, of all the proverbial wisdom he gave us, he said, above everything else, above all the other things I'm saying, above all the other advice and this other wisdom, this is the thing. Guard your And why? Because your heart determines the direction of your life. What flows in and out of your heart determines the direction of your life. You might fake it with a facade for a while, but if your heart is corrupt or your heart is in rebellion to God or your heart is unguarded, it's all going to come crashing down at some point. So guard your heart. Well, how do we do that? Well, how do we guard anything? We would put up a defense around it. We would put up a gate around it. We'd put up a fence around it. And we would monitor what comes in and out through the gate. So the gateway to your heart comes through our ears. The gateway to our hearts is through our ears. It's what we listen to. It's the music we listen to, the jokes we listen to, the language we listen to, the gossip we listen to. Because what you listen to flows into your ears, flows down to your heart, and then flows out through your life, through your mouth. And I know, I know, I know, because I hear people say, well, yeah, but I can listen to it and not be affected by it. I can listen to the joking. I mean, some of them are kind of funny, but I'm not going to repeat it. I'll listen to the gossip, but I'm not really participating. I'm not going to go share that with somebody. No, but you'll think badly of the person you hear about. I'll listen to things. I'll listen to music, but I really won't be affected by it. And we just know. Like all of us, if we're honest, we know that's not true. Like there's, like music affects us. When you hear Eye of the Tiger, you do not 
picture the love scene from the notebook, right? You don't picture the, the last scene with this sweet old couple, like, cuddling up. No, no. You picture Rocky Balboa beating the tar out of somebody, right? Like, cause music moves us. It affects us. It changes us. So we gotta be cautious about how we're letting it affect us. Uh, another pathway to the heart is through our eyes. The things we look on, the, movies we watch, the books we read, the things, the images we dwell on that we look long at, that we linger too long at sometimes. You know, I hear people say, well, I can look but not touch. And again, we know that that's just not true because the things we look at, if they're destructive, they touch our soul in destructive ways. So we've got to be cautious about the things that we look at. We'll see things that sometimes we cannot unsee, even as much as we try. Be cautious with your eyes. Another pathway, another gateway to our hearts is through our minds. The things we think on and dwell on, that we stress over, that we obsess over, those things trickle from our minds down into our heart. They overflow through our behaviors. All those things we listen to and look at and think on, they they shape us. So the rule of thumb is this, garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in, garbage out. You take garbage in, garbage is going to come out. So we've got to be cautious about that. Now, don't misunderstand this. This does not mean run away from all the things of the world and disengage from it and and hide yourself from the world and, and isolate No, our mission is that we infiltrate the world with the word of God, ready to bring hope and life and love and grace and mercy and on and on and on. So that means we got to go to the world. And sometimes that means we have to engage the world. So it's not that Jesus would tell us or that scripture would tell us that we cannot engage non-Christian books or movies or music or any of those things. No, no, no. But it is unwise. In fact, it is ridiculously dangerous to disengage our minds when we engage with the world. Don't turn your mind off when you're tuning in to any of those other things. I I get how sometimes we we think we just need to veg. I just need to chill, we veg. And sometimes we'll listen to music while we're vegging or we'll watch movies while we're vegging. And the problem with that is if you take veggies and you leave them out on the counter, what happens to those things after a while? They rot. It happens with fruit. You get fruit flies with veggies. I don't know if they're veggie flies. Just flies come around. They smell bad. It's nasty. It rots. When you just veg out on the things of this world, it rots your soul. It'll rot your soul. So we've got to be cautious. Now, this doesn't mean don't engage those things. It means don't engage those things mindlessly. But instead, develop a biblical worldview and filter everything you encounter through the lens of Scripture. Take tradition, filter it through scripture. Take whatever you're seeing in the world, filter it through scripture. Developing a biblical worldview is how we prepare ourselves to engage with the world around us. This is why you got one of these today, the fall schedule. Everything that we offer here, every class, every gathering, every grouping, this is why we're so big on small groups, this is why we're big on what we teach on Sundays, because all of that is designed to help us collectively develop a biblical worldview to have a filter for how we deal with the things we encounter. To approach those things from a godly perspective. So this doesn't mean don't engage with the things of the world. It means that as you engage with them, look 
at where they bear the mark of the creator. Because God's thumbprint is on the entirety of his creation. That means God's thumbprint is on the entirety of every creative activity. Sometimes it's really dim, right? The light of God has been really dim. You got to search for it a little bit. But God's thumbprint is on everything. So look for it there. And, And engage with people. Find the common ground to engage with other people on those things. Look for the ways to use those things to point people back to Jesus, to point people back to their creator, not just to point out what's wrong and what they've done bad and what's wrong with all that stuff. This is why we do at the movies at times here at this church. It's because we can take a movie that most often actors and directors haven't given any thought to God on, but they've made this movie, and we see the thread of our creator in it the movie have a war sequence guess what the lord is a warrior the lord is his name that is exodus well, let me tell you about the warrior does it have a love story to it let me tell you about the greatest love story ever it's the love of god for his people does it have any kind of redemption story well let me tell you about the redeemer does it have any kind of messiah figure yeah let me tell you who the messiah is does it have a hero does it no matter what it's dealing with is there an overcomer is there a second chance is there, you name the movie there's a thread of God's creation on that. And so we don't run from those things. We use those things to point people back to their creator and to the goodness of God. But in order to do that, we've got to spend more time filling our minds, filling our eyes, filling our ears with God's word, God's wisdom, and with worship. So here in just a moment, we're going to do that. Here in just a moment, Jonathan and the team are going to come back out. They're going to lead us in a song where we will stand and we will praise God and we will think and see and hear the worship of God's people. And we will fill ourselves with that. We'll let that invade our hearts. But before we do that, I don't want us to move too quickly from where we've been. I think it's healthy for us to pause to have some moment of silence and reflect upon who God is and what he's done. When you came in today, you received communion cup. For those of you joining us online, you can take what you've prepared, bread, juice, what you have available. And I encourage you to go ahead and open up the bottom, hold the bread in your hand. See, Jesus and his disciples got in trouble because they didn't wash their hands before dinner. Friends, this is the greatest meal we've ever been invited to be part of. See, this bread represents the body of Jesus. The cup represents the blood of Jesus, sacrificed for us, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins on the cross. It's the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. There's no scrubbing you can do. There's no hand washing you can do that'll make you clean in the sight of God like that. Only the blood of Jesus washes us clean. There's no other way. You can't be good enough. You can't behave well enough. We're only made clean by being washed clean by the sacrificed blood of Jesus. And when we, when we acknowledge that, we surrender to that. We say, Jesus, you are my rescuer and you are my king. Then we're invited to join him at the table. 
And, and this communion moment that we have is a simple foreshadowing of the feast that awaits us in glory in paradise where Jesus is right now setting the table for you to join him there giving you a special personal invitation to join him at his heavenly forever feast so to make sure that our hearts are right with him let's do as the psalmist has said search me O God and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts point out anything in me that offends you and lead me God along the path of your everlasting life I'm going to pray and then we offer this moment to you of silence for you to allow God to search your heart and then you can eat and drink the communion as you're ready and then we will stand and together we will sing and fill our hearts with worship let's pray God we thank you that you are a loving God that even though we do not measure up you love us anyway God we thank you that you have gone before us, that your blood washes over us, that we don't have to worry about how good we are, how good we perform, about all the rules and regulations. We simply surrender to you. And God, in this moment, we acknowledge that we don't even do a very good job of that. So God, search us and tell us of the ways that we have clinged to empty tradition and just ritualistic religion instead of clinging to you. Expose that to us, God. Show us the ways that we have allowed all the things of this world to infiltrate our hearts, to corrupt us and do damage when we should be guarding them and offering them to you. And God, give us the courage to once again surrender to you, to follow you. God, meet us here in the silence.